burning our way through hour number two. Welcome back inside the Parisi Palace, high above 2919 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show, coming to you live on Power Talk, an internet radio broadcasting company. Please download our free app. You can go to Power Talk Live and download our free app. Everybody's got a smartphone these days, for better or for worse. You can stream all of our live local programming. Full-on extraterrestrial radio, expanding consciousness, love, enlightenment, and wisdom. And it's an honor to have you make, uh, making us part of your day today. And uh, without further ado, I want to bring in a cat who's been on my radar for some time, looking to expand out, flesh out his career. Um, he's a man of, of uh, deep spirit and spirituality and love and wisdom now. Um, and he's also a, a pretty accomplished guitar player and rocker. Found success early in his career. I have a hunch it might have been overwhelming, but he's certainly steadied the anchor, steadied the ship, and he's moving straight ahead now. Kevin Russell, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Oh, thanks, Jake. What an introduction. Wow. Can I live up to that? Well, I just that was, that was, I was riffing off I was riffing off the top of my head on that. But uh, it's, a, it's great to connect with you, brother. But no, I, oh, I, thank can you. you can you talk uh, candidly about tasting pop material success? very early in your life how you handled it and and then ultimately if there were stumbling blocks and and how you overcame it i just find it important i I, the more and more i talk to cats now jazzers you know i mean if you were going to be a jazzer like freddie hubbard or lee morgan or miles i mean listen those cats were sidemen before they became leaders and then at a certain point record companies not actually very soon around the time that you were coming up they were like oh Uh you know uh we're going to give we're just going to make stars out of kids that are straight out of high school. They have a certain look. They're po- we want to make them popular. But they gave all this responsibility to people that haven't even matured. And to me, that mm-hmm. was a major demarcation point in our history. But I just wanted, mm-hmm. you to, I wanted you to riff on that for a minute. Well, you're probably talking about 707, I'm sure. That's right. And, and uh, you know, I had been playing you know, in Detroit, I'm a born and raised in Detroit. So I've been playing since uh, I was a little kid, rough playing with my dad and my older brother. So I started gigging really young and studied and took lessons. And so, you know, the, by the time I was 22 and decided to leave Detroit, because I felt I kind of had hit the ceiling there as far as work and being a guitar player around town, I wanted to, exp- you know, expand my opportunities as a young guy and move to Hollywood. So I did in the summer of 76. And I will say that Hollywood in the mid seventies was great. It was off the hook. It was really <laughs> Dude, cool. Hollywood yeah. be thy name. I cannot believe you were out in Hollywood. In the, hold on for a second. But in Detroit, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you must've been steeped in, uh, I mean, to be in Detroit in the early 70s, I mean, were you seeing, like, Parliament in these clubs, Funkadelic? I mean, what were you checking out? Well, well earlier than that, yeah. you know, I mean, growing up in the 60s, Detroit was, as you can well imagine, Jake was amazing. And being able to drive down Grand Boulevard, what is now Hitsville, USA Museum, but was Motown and and just, you know, on my way, literally, my mom taking my older brother and I to our pediatrician at the Fisher Building, driving uptown Grand Boulevard, and my mom would point and go, oh, yeah, look over there on the porch, that's that young uh, Diana Ross and, uh, you know, Smokey. <laughs> yeah, right. Everybody be hanging out. But here's the truth. Yeah. When I was young in Motown, I didn't think anybody was listening 
except Detroit to that music. I had no idea that they were going to become these huge stars and Barry and Barry Gordy and Motown would become iconic and Stevie Wonder. And I mean, I saw Motown reviews when I was a little kid. So little Stevie Wonder, I think he was 11 or 12. But I want to be clear about something. With time perspective, you can uh-huh. see. But but at the time, these cats were already their careers were already underway. Is that? But you, I mean, that, their careers were underway, uh-huh. right? And yeah. we were listening to local radio and black radio. My my brother and I, older brother and I, and so that's yeah. it. But around that same time, in the late '60s, you know. Uh, so I, I don't want your uh, viewers to uh, listeners. I, Kevin, you just riff, man. You're doing awesome. Okay, oh, just go. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, so what I'm going to say next, all political views aside, sure. all NRA views aside. Yeah. Ted Nugent and I have been buddies for a lifetime. <laughs> we go back. Okay. Sure. He's a Detroit cat. Oh God, yeah. yeah. We had the same guitar teacher. I'd see young Teddy every Thursday. He was after me. Uh, my lesson was first with the great Joe Podorsik, our teacher, and who was also a funk brother. And so, oh, wow. you know, really? I was exposed to some pretty cool stuff oh. early on. I, As I got a little older, um, I was, uh, you know, because I could read. So I played some local shows when she came to town with the great... Uh, 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 gosh, I want to say Nancy Wilson, and 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 I uh, would uh, Joe Simon, R&B guy who had some big hits in the early seventies. Uh, 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 Joe Williams. Well, let, let me slow down. You you could sight read. So when these cats came in and were looking for a rhythm section, you were playing with them. Yeah, I holy read, you know, sight cow, read Joe well. Simon, dude, that dude's a bad bad man. Yeah, dude. choking kind, baby. So in, in, in black clubs, and so this I had is, no. This is we, we could spend an hour on. This. You you were oh, yeah. in the pocket of you. So I mean, because the best thing about Detroit, because Spider Webb was a serious drummer, Kenneth Spider Rice, and oh, yeah. and he uh, played with Harry Belafonte. But he talked about in those black clubs because mm-hmm. in jazz clubs they were also playing our Motown. So you get sure. funks. So I mean, just. Put us back. That to me was how elastic music was. How did you fit into that? And you were probably what, 12, 15, 13? No, well, no, a little older in my teens, like older teens, like when I, uh, 18, 17, 18, 19, when I was uh, getting calls because I had befriended uh, horn players, as a matter of fact, and a lot of guys were doing uh, Motown dates and or were buddies or were higher up in the union the hierarchy there local five and would get calls to do you know when when singers or artists would come to town and they needed x amount of local musicians and maybe these artists carried their probably in most cases carried their musical director aka piano player and they would augment the rest of the band so i could read pretty well you know so i'd get calls to sub for somebody or play these and i did a couple of weeks with big joe williams you know my older brother and i and and a uh, Motown bass player uh, who did, uh, you know, some subbing and, uh, you know, not one, not, it wasn't Jamie, it wasn't the main cats. But so, you know, I would do a variety of things, whether in, and so I've always said, you know, coming from Detroit, you know, it's like heavy R&B and hard on the rock. Heavy on the R&B and hard on rock, and that, and so Detroit is the only city that that uh, um, 
created rock soul. I mean, that was it before rock Detroit. There was soul. no rock soul. Rocks. I've you know I've heard jazz. Tony Williams dubbed it jazz rock. I've never heard rock soul, but I think you're spot on. Yeah, rock soul would be Bob Seger. Rock soul would be Mitch Ryder. You know, rock soul would be Mark Farner, Grand Funk. I dig. Uh, I dig. You know, and so I was really taken with that because uh, even MC5, you sure. know, even Absolutely. Rob Kiner, right. singer, right. you know, was, was so they were a garage punk band, but they were steeped heavy in blues and R&B, and you just couldn't escape it. So I was starting to get gigs and get calls and fast forward gigs. So then it was time for me to move along, and a couple of my Detroiter buddies had already moved out to Hollywood. And a couple of my uh, well, Mo- Motown, Mo- correct me if I'm wrong, but Motown moved out to Hollywood. Oh, yeah, yeah. they were. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say by the, what was that, maybe 69, 70? Yeah, 70, early 70, I mean, because Willie Hutch was cranking out there doing Motown. But yeah. I mean, yeah, but they, but I'm saying you, you, you just, you made that, tr- that's where all, that's where it was happening. Well, that's where it was happening. So getting to, getting to Hollywood in 1976 as a 22 year old, and uh, it was, uh, Still, you know, the club scene was was happening again, and there was a new movement coming, and then there was the wave of melodic rock and punk, and um, uh, the new wave, the skinny tie bands. All this was happening at once, and it was starting to happen. And so, you know, I knocked around and got a gig and played in, in Hollywood, and L.A. musicians really loved Detroit guitar players. So I always worked playing top forty, whatever clubs. I I I I got working, you know, you know, pretty soon after I moved. And then it was uh, I met uh, Duke McFadden, who was the pianist in seven oh seven. He I got a call. I joined the musicians contact service <laughs> and you could look through the books for people who were looking or they could look and see who was freelance. So I got a call out of the blue to do a wedding gig and I showed up and I had Duke McFadden <laughs> and uh, Jack White, the sure. drummer uh, who played with Rick Springfield forever and ever, who was a Detroiter. And so I was like, oh, oh man. So we get on the gig. Duke and I hit it off really well. And then I found out uh, a drummer that I loved, Jim McClarty from Detroit, had moved to Hollywood. We actually talked about this briefly before my move. Someone told me, hey, yeah, you know, Detroit, blah, 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 is in town. He's, he's living with the bass player friend of him. So I, uh, Duke and I hit it off really well. And he called me to do some demos with him. And we talked and discussed about doing something. And I got a call from a a singer. He's a black cat who was a, a hard rock singer, like way before Living Color. We're talking like this is like 1977, right? So I, I just this really is so just keep going. This is unreal. Yeah, it wasn't received well. His name was Stephen Stallworth. Anyway, so I called Jim. What? Wait, 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 hold on. A black some guy, some black guy who was singing rock was not well received. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't you know because. You know, like I say, it was way before Living Color. Oh, I did. No, I did. I understand. I did. I just want to get you understand. it straight. You know, yeah. it was like Hollywood. They were digging it, but they were like, you know, they're looking for Robert Plant. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, I called. Duke also played bass as well as piano, so I had him play bass. I got you. Know, I put a power trio behind the guy. Long story short, we do a showcase. I get a manager involved, some guy around town who... Uh, uh, was at a management company who also managed 
Bloodstone at the time. Love that group. I'll figure that, right? So yeah. anyway, I call this guy, and he's interested in managing. So we get a showcase, and we showcase for Atlantic at SIR Studios with Stalwart, with this singer. Guy comes in, real long beard, long hair, and kind of looks like one of the Smith Brothers crop drops. I go, hmm, yeah, John Kalodner. So, hmm. yep, so he listens, blah, 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 says, I'll be right back, goes out to his car, comes in, hands each one of us Foreigner's first album, said I just signed him. Uh, the leader of the band was from a band called Spooky Tooth. This is what we're calling melodic rock, and it's, it's going to be the wave of the future. Listen to it. I think you need to go in this direction. Okay. Then he calls the manager, and he says, we get, we get this call later on. So Kladner had called the manager after all this and said, get rid of the singer. I noticed that the bass player doubles on piano, and he, I heard him singing uh, some backgrounds as well as a guitar player. Move that bass player over to piano find yourself a bass player get rid of that singer and have those guys start writing songs and get something going i like what i heard there the beginnings of 707 mm. that's what it was wow mm -hmm. so, um how far were you away f weren't you how far were you away from his his listen his melodic rock conception i mean at that point i mean how much he said you won. Well, we were well backing up the singer. It was pretty hard rock. It was pretty hard. Right. Pretty hard. You know, he wanted a Detroit guitar thing, and it was pretty pretty rock. And he was way smitten with Zeppelin. So you so then that's where the you know like can you talk to the audience about how you go from hard rock to m m more melodic? I just love melody and song is important. It's it's yeah. It's, it's vapid. Well, and, I, yeah. Go ahead. We did a couple of songs. I'm trying to think now, Jake, that were penned by Duke, one or two that were penned by me, that this, that were you know written by us, that the singer sang in this particular showcase. And I think the blow-by-blow, blow, I'm sure the manager was telling uh, Kalodner blow-by-blow, blow, like who was writing what, what. So I think when those couple songs came around, you know, Kalodner's the man. He was the man. He had the ears. He knew. He could hear... Uh, he, you know, I mean, he didn't sign us. Ultimately, we did not end up on Atlantic, but because of John, uh, things shifted major, and I just uh, knew about his track record. I didn't know him, but I put on that Foreigner first album when I got home that day, and was blown away, <laughs> completely blown away, <laughs> wore it out. I mean, blown away. No, you and know, I this is loved, like yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. I love Spooky too, so I, I kind of I knew who Mick Jones was as well as Gary Wright. But uh, it was, it, and I, Lou Graham was like, he was like the new Paul Rogers or something to me. I was like, man, this cat. But I just loved how the blue, it was blues-based, but it was melodic and a lot of guitar stuff, but there was keyboard things. And, and it was just, it was like, it's where we wanted to go. So uh, that's what we decided, and we worked hard, and then we started playing clubs in Hollywood. Like that's we started playing the Starwood opening. And then we got to the point where we were blowing the headliners off. And then uh, we did a fair amount of shows with Quiet Riot in the early days. And Randy Rhodes and I became buddy, mm. you know, buddies enough at Soundcheck. He's one of the sweetest guys ever. And he loved my playing, and I certainly loved his playing. And he played a white Les Paul, and I played a black Les Paul custom. And so we, we got on well. And so we started doing some of these co-bills 
finally we started to get the headline, Starwood, sell it out, lines around the block when we played. Then we got to play the Whiskey. Then we got to play the Roxy. And we went back to the Starwood because that was our home base. Our next manager, Fred Rupert, who got involved, got Bruce Bird from Casablanca to come down. That's how it was. And we knew who Neil Bogart was from Buddha, and we certainly knew about Casablanca. Yeah, Donna Summer and those people at the disco, but we knew they had one of the biggest bands in the world, Kiss. So we're like, well, cool. Anyway, he brings him down. We, he comes into the set. Bruce Bird watches the whole set. We get off before our encore. He says, uh, and the, our manager says, Bruce Bird, big guy he was, and he shook all our hand. He said, hey, how would you guys like to be Casablanca recording artists? And we were like, oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, so we went down. We played the encore of our life came back we all toasted and dressed and blah 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 it was right before christmas paperwork was done we started recording our first album in january of 1980 then um the album was released really nothing's happening during this time we're not getting along with duke we part ways phil bryant jim mcclarty myself part ways with duke and um and Fred, Rupert, the manager. And so hindsight, you know, is we did what we had to do. Not a great decision. But uh, now we find out we have a breakout single on I Could Be Good For You. And I think it was breaking in Kansas City or St. Louis somewhere. And Detroit jumped on it. And when Detroit found out that three quarters of the band was Detroit, they went hard on it, both rock radio. So now we're ready to start our second album without Duke, the three of us and hired keyboard players. And now we have a breakout single on rock radio. Now what do we do? We're like, oh boy, now we go out on tour. We finish the second album, we go out on tour. Now we got two albums. We do a club tour. We're selling out clubs all over. Then we come back and we get ready for uh, some co-bills and blah, blah, blah. And we do another swing. And then we get offered the REO Speedwagon Tour in 1981. They're a high infidelity tour, right? The biggest tour of that year. They're huge. You know, they, they blew up. So we're the opening act. Seemed like forever. And uh, we start, then we, when we were opening for REO Speedwagon, and we're going over great, and everybody knew who, what, you know, they had all, the, the audience had all heard of I Could Be Good For You, so that would be a, a great. Uh, reception when we kick into that it was unbelievable you know uh, when you when you hear 15,000 20,000 people Did, screaming and approving of the intro of your song because right. they know it and they know all the words I'm 20 I don't know 26 25 something uh, you know and uh, I have I'm 26 and I have a little daughter at home and my ex-wife and Hollywood and I'm on the road and <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, no know, here's and the question headlines. i want i want to ask you very yeah. very simply like um yeah. how, how do you not try to make a hit and it becomes a hit i don't believe you guys were in the studio saying we got it although i i would love you to take me through that process of of it became big but i mean i think the, my generation younger generations the idea is we have to make a hit the pressure we have to make a hit we have to yeah, you know well, and that never comes yeah. but but i mean you guys it happened so organically i'd just like you to talk about how not to make a hit and that's how it turns into a hit 
Well, I could be good for you is as simple as this. We, we argued over that song when we were recording in the studio. There was lots of arguments, as you can well imagine. Young artistic guys who want to be heard. So we're fighting all the time. And, um, but we're getting some great stuff, but we're fighting. And so Duke decides uh, it was kind of mm, later, because we, we, we already had this song written. We wrote it in a couple of sittings, right? And then we started playing it at our club gigs around Hollywood. And it went over, but we didn't, th- we thought it was a cool rocker. And we were just like, you know, it was kind of cool. It was kind of foreigner-ish. It was kind of whatever. And we didn't think, but I fell in love with it. And then we got to the studio. Then there was, you know, we had too many songs. And Duke really didn't want, I could be good for you on the album. So wow. I completely was it a jelly was it, i mean from now, i don't know he thought we had other better songs wow so the producers no 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 so he's arguing for it the manager's arguing for it i'm arguing for it not only did it end up on the record it was the first track on the album and it was the hit so no you don't know did i think it was a hit no did, 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 I, did I even know what that was, Jake? No. But I knew that it had a very cool guitar riff, total, you know, rocking guitar riff that I just loved to play. And it had a cool guitar solo that I loved to play. And I loved the chorus. And it was melodic. And it was all, I had all that great stuff that Duke put in the verses. and chorus. It was all wonderful. So I thought, just wrote a cool song. That's all. I did, we're talking to Kevin Russell here, really glib uh, and a, a, quite an accomplished guitar player out of the Motor City. Um, <laughs> I just can you know we're we're at a, we're living through a, a pretty historical time in the mm-hmm. world and in our country. Um, I, you know, as objectively as you can. Uh, I mean, you're you're a pastor now. No, 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 not me. No, the ex drummer from Seven O Seven is. The, so okay, so you so you are. You, but where are you based now? I'm in San Francisco. I'm in Marin County. You're still in Marin County. Okay. So I was going to go off on a, I was going to go off on more of a faith based thing. So so you you um, uh, I I have to ask you. Um, mm-hmm. I first uh, came across uh, Kevin Russell. I, I was looking at your website maybe a couple years ago when I realized that you uh, had connected with. Um, uh, uh, David Morgan and uh, uh, Bill yeah. Kreutzmann and, and I, I mean this is absolutely classic to me um, that uh, I, I would like you to talk, work your way through once you got um, okay. the band disbanded obviously uh, 707 took a break um, but, but then how did yeah. you wind up in the Bay Area and then how the heck did you wind up connecting with, uh, with, you know, with Brent, Billy and, and David mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll speed it along. So band 707 disbanded in 1983. Uh, then I started taking gigs. Uh, the, we came up to record the Megaforce album at the, at the urging of our next man, our third management team. Uh, they, they wanted us to get out of LA and record, uh, isolate us and get us recording at the record plant in Sausalito. So that's what that was. And then my ex-wife at the time fell in love with uh, Marin County and the rest is history. So I moved up. So blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it, was still, so, it was still somewhat affordable at that time. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> it, it, it was. Yeah, yeah it, it was. Absolutely. I, mean, I know was, early eighties was still, you were okay. Yeah, we were okay. It was okay. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, 
then I uh, it was kind of lost for a little while, you know. I mean, the band broke up, and my, my and all the guys left, and here I was. And so I knocked around and played and took gigs wherever I could and played all kind of gigs. And because I could read, like I said, I could get other gigs. And uh, no rock star, you know, no buses, no no arenas, no roadies, no, you know, gigs. I went back to doing what I do, I'm a musician. So pretty humbling and pretty scary. So I had met Dave Morgan. I don't know where, but somewhere around the scene, I had met Dave and we became uh, friendly enough and and uh, respected each other's playing. And he was with uh, Carlos. He's with Santana. Absolutely. Can I ask you the the, the were you uh-huh. playing? In, what, what kind of club? Which clubs were you playing? I, I've done. A lot. I was playing clubs in the South Bay. I was playing uh, uh, what they call casuals. I was playing weddings. I was playing uh, uh, boat cruises. I was playing, you name it, I did it. Right. Show stuff. But I guess the three. reality is, like in Berkeley or those areas, people like. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Morgan, Morgan lived there, but I mean, those cats were just, yeah. except they were out checking out the scene or they, they you know, that's, yeah. How, yeah, yeah, they were checking out the scene. So we became, but anyway, so 1985, I get a call from Dave and said, you want to come down and play with, come down to front street. I was living in San Rafael. I was, wasn't living too far from where the dead rehearsed. I mean, probably a mile and a half. And um, you want to come down and have a play with Billy Kreutzmann and, and uh, the late great Brent Midland. Well, how did you meet them, though? Uh, I met them that night, first night of the first play. I only knew Dave. D- Margan called me in. Oh, Margan so Margan went... called you and said, "Do you want to come play with with Brent and yeah. Billy?" Oh, this is classic. Yeah, Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, you want to come play? Oh, this is classic. They're, they're this... thinking of putting something together, a side thing. Dad's kind of on hiatus. And you, know, you can go to the sacred front street. <laughs> and so I knew not much of the dead. Sure. Being up here in the in the uh, Bay Area, I didn't know. It was kind of a running joke, 707, because we were an L.A. band up here. And, uh, and, you know, the closest thing we could relate to was probably the stone in the city, uh, rock club, you know, we were like, Oh boy. So the running joke was, yeah, Kevin, will, one day you'll end up like playing in some grateful dead band. And well, no, but like, this is oh, so man. interesting. Cause you come in, like you, yeah. you broke that rock soul. I mean that you were coming from that, the Detroit hard rock, you wound up in, in, uh, in Hollywood and, uh, and then all of a sudden you're thrown into this really just creative freedom yeah. space. But I know that you probably had the chops to do that. I'm not sure how you felt about. What yeah, we, no, no, it was all good. Yeah, it go, was all good go because ahead. the early seventies when I was in Detroit and I had toured, I started touring when I was 18 hitting the road, playing with horn bands and show bands off the East coast. And I was all, and I did hair uh, off Broadway when I was 19 summer stock, all traveled all over the East and lived in New York. Uh, off and on the whole summer of 74, wow. 73, four, four. And so, you know, and then around that period, I was turned down to Mahavishnu, Chick Corea, uh, Larry Coriel, 11th house, Brian Augers, Oblivion Express. Oh, burning, uh, burning, burning. Oh yeah, man. So burning. now I'm like, I'm way into that. I come back, and so I'm playing around town with Cats, electric violin player, and 
piano player and bass players and you know all the all the cats playing fusion. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah your fusion. own, you had your own, your own, your own little Mahavishnu thing going. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we're playing around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Herbie Hancock was happening. Sure. So all of that, I just loved it because I loved, I loved everything about it, and, and especially the musicianship and the chops. And I was practicing a lot, Jake. So my chops were up, and so it wasn't like going to that first play with the dead guys, which that band would become Kokomo. And uh, it wasn't a stretch for me at all playing free. I mean, no, and playing no, but with I, Billy. I, you just, I mean, just, uh, th- I know it's not. So you walk, you get, to, I mean, that place was riffraff. San Rafael was a funky town at, still at that time. You, mm-hmm. uh, you go in uh, and you met, and, and, and that was the first time you met those, him and Brent and Billy and, and then take it from there. I mean, this, this to me is absolute classic history. Yeah. So, hey, how you doing? And yeah. Brent's sitting behind the B3, and Billy's sitting behind the drums, and they had an amp for me, Marshall and everything. And Dave's like, yeah, it's my buddy Kevin Russell. And they're like, yeah, man, we heard all about you, blah, blah, blah. So we played for, I don't know, an hour maybe. We jammed on some stuff, and Brent said, I got a tune that goes like this. He just laid out the chord changes for me, and we kind of vibed it up, and we're playing, and then, Billy says, yeah, I'm going to line up a tour. And because uh, I think he had Steps Ahead or something he had with Margan. Because Margan had played with those guys before. Well, they had the, they had this thing called, uh, like Margan had played it with Kingfish, with Bob Weir. But, oh, 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 okay. But there was that there was that uh, city section with uh, Alex Litcherwood, who was also in Brian Auger, Living Express. But, mm-hmm. but right. I, I'm, I guess I'm curious about, uh, like, the um, uh, just the, what what was different even before Kokomo started to play live. I mean, when you guys were rehearsing, can you talk about how that was a different experience than anything else you might have? Well, I mean, like you said, you had gotten you you had done hair and you'd gotten exposed to the fusion, but I mean, you hadn't really played it before. So, what was what was kind of inspiring about it? Well, I mean. First of all, it was very blues based anyway. Right. So it was, you know, it was all in my wheelhouse. It wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't really, a, it wasn't really like uh, out there for me. I think Billy being um, the kind of drummer he was and me being growing up with two drummers in the house, my, my father and my older brother, and being so committed to strong rhythm guitar playing, it was different for me in that regard. But I will say this, Brent and Billy were very, very supportive of my tunes. And because I had uh, sent Morgan a cassette of some of the demo stuff that I was doing at the record plant in LA. Sure. With some good people that was melodic, but more rock kind of in the 707 direction. But you know, and it had a lot of elements to it. So Morgan had this cassette and he had played it for Billy and Brent. And that's when they said, yeah, bring this guy down. So Brent says to me at this first rehearsal, I, I got your cassette, man. And, and I like your tunes. I'm like, Oh really? He's like, I said, well, thanks. He goes, yeah, I, I think we should be doing two or at least two or three of those in the set. I'm like, okay. So that was a really wonderful well, that, surprise thank you so you know what man i never saw the dead i don't I, I i mean i just get off so much brent midland's one of my favorite if not my favorite musician of all time 
And mm. I just love to hear these personal stories about the idea of, you know, like easily any other, they could have been jerks and been like this stuff, you know, we're just playing our tunes or, you know, the yeah, idea of no, them, they could have been, yeah, they could have been totally stand. I love the support nature. Mm. And I guess mm. with, and I think also Morgan's Morgan is such a pocket. He, he's not Phil Lesh. I mean, Morgan is right in, I mean, he is keep locking that groove with Billy, yeah. you know, and he didn't let Billy get so free where, cause I mean, Billy was playing with the dead for so long. I have to believe right. he kind of wanted to just get back to just the rudiments. But uh, to me, yeah. this is just exhilarating. So, so your tunes, uh, now, huh? are there, do you have any, uh, so, 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 so Billy lines up a tour and it becomes Coke. Where did the, ba- where did the, was the, was the, was there a Caribbean flavor to this, to the music? Why, why was there this, why did the band get named Kokomo? I don't know. Billy, came up with that and <laughs> so I, I really didn't i didn't care what what what, what he called it it was it was his thing and sure. he got john Shear, the biggest promoters at the time in the east coast to do the club tour and small theater tour and and uh it was very uh interesting and enlightening at the same time for me because i had never been brought i mean i was brought into the dead world and I certainly had no prior experience or any prior uh, conception I, I didn't know what it what it was other than I heard the band uh, uh, you know a, a number of their songs but I, I didn't know anything about it and so I was brought into this world full throttle and uh, so we're playing Brent's tunes, my tunes. We're, we're covering some dead tunes and kind of twisting them around. Now, here I am putting the rock in here. Here I am, <laughs> the, you know, the cat with uh, long layered hair. Here I am, uh, MTV's in full swing yep, at this time. Absolutely. Here, here I am, and I'm going to say that I got a story for you, and I know exactly which date it happened on. But in the beginning, and we saw, mind you, we saw a lot of the same people at the shows, city to city, and Kreutzmann would would give me a briefing and and a tutorial on this whole thing, how it runs, and you'll see these people here, and they'll be camping out here. And I'm like, oh my god, what? He's like, oh no, man, I'm telling. So he would like. He's telling me what goes on in the dead world, right? Right. So I'm like, okay, and I'm finding the whole thing just completely amusing. So I was not received very well in the beginning. I had a lot of Jerry, Bobby, Chance from out. They didn't, you know, they weren't, they weren't just digging that that look. Well, no, and I think this goes back. This is so fascinating because I think it goes back to this sort of narrow mind. I mean, I'm not trying to bash on deadheads or the community, but I really find that a lot of them, uh, they they were so limited. They were, they were going there for a, uh, a party mentality and they weren't necessarily recognizing the musicianship of cats like Kreutzmann and Brent to say, no, we're, we're just doing our own thing. This isn't the grateful dead. Like right. you should be able to really be open eared to that, uh, and I, don't, mm. I mean, I, in, in any event. So you were, but that. How did you? So, those, how did you? Just in general, how do you have the moxie to sort of tune that out and just still channel your own career? Oh, I, I, I didn't care. I was like, whatever, yeah. you know, whatever. I'm just playing, and I got a couple of Marshall stacks behind me, Jake. So I don't care. I'm just, I'm wailing, playing my Les Pauls, having a ball. The band sounds really good loved playing with brent 
and uh, and, and and Billy and, and Dave, and uh, it was uh, you know a lot of fun. Uh, and so we're in Baltimore. I believe it's Baltimore. I'm just going to tell you right now. I'm looking at the set lists. It, you had quite a long set. Uh, you started. Oh yeah. Let me see here. I'm going to try. Was it in D.C. or was it in Baltimore? Because I'm looking here. Oh, I'm looking here. Itinerary. The Bayou. Well, the Bayou in Washington D.C. You went J- Jersey, D.C., Boston. I don't see any Baltimore on here. No, there's not Baltimore. D.C. Yeah. Okay. So what, what was, it was the club was called the Bayou. The, okay. Right. And so that was it. Yeah, I, yeah. I was thinking it was either Baltimore or DC. DC. August eleventh, nineteen eighty-five. Right. Billy goes up to the slams the sticks down on the snare, walks out to the front of the stage, grabs my mic, and goes off on this completely packed house about them with the with the the chanting and Jerry and Bobby and went off on them and came over and put his arm around me and pulled me to the center of the stage and used, you know, and, and, and the F bombs flew <laughs> and said, this is my friend. You know, I invited him. He's a world-class guitar player. He's a great blah, 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 blah. And you better start blah, blah, blah. After like, treating him with respect, let me hear it for Kevin Russell. And they, and the whole place got on their feet. Now he spoke. And I was like, I just looked at Billy, and I was like, teary-eyed. Wow, at him this like, is unbelievable. He goes, he goes, yeah, man, yeah, man, now let's play. I'll wow. never forget. From that point on, the word for the rest of the dates, and we got to San Francisco, and we did show. Excuse me. <coughs> we did shows here. <clears throat> and um, the word was out, and Bobby came and sat in with us. And so the word was out that I was, okay, but... Relics magazine wasn't having it, and they ripped they ripped into me. Whoever whoever was did the review, and my MTV slickness marred the band or something like that. And so I'm at Billy's. He purchased a, a, a new home at the time after the around this time the band's kind of winding down, and he's in San Anselmo here in Marin, and we own a house, and he and I are hanging out, and. He's, and we're laughing and we're talking and we go, yeah, the whole MTV thing, blah, blah, blah. Well, guess who shot a video for Touch of Grey and blew up on MTV shortly shortly thereafter was the dad. And we both, I remember him and I just cracking up about that because he remembers how they were like, and then Relics was this whole MTV. Like MTV was a bad word in that whole dead world. It Absolutely. was like a really, ba- it was a bad thing. Right, because it, 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 like, it meant slick and polished and... It meant all that. I mean, what are you kidding? These, these, they're, they're breaking acts in, in, in your living room. I mean, <laughs> their acts are breaking overnight because of this, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, they don't need it, you know? How, and, how uh, amazing that, because how appropriate is it that then, that then they hit stardom? I mean, they became overnight in doing yeah touch of grass i mean i and billy and i laughed he, he, he was really forthcoming about that and i i hit it off really well with billy and i i always I, I think i understood him and i and i think he felt i did and and uh, i accepted him for who he was and what he did you know absolutely and, uh, i actually and, and, yeah go ahead and i have nothing but respect and to this day and i will say that both and brent was one of the sweetest souls that i ever knew and so supportive and, and, and what a soulful cat, man. This guy was like, he reminded me a lot of Greg Allman. 
And and I, I, I love that about him. And so he and I hit it off right away musically. And uh, and he battled with his demons, God, God rest his soul. And so, um, but there was no rock star stuff. Those guys, the dead was bigger, as big as any band could ever be, but there was never any of that, which I was so used to from bands that were not even close to, to being as big as the dead that had a lot of bravado and ego. And so I was used to that world, especially touring, uh, you know, and you know, with other acts. So, uh, to get with those guys and it was just so low key and like non rock star, but that tour, we lived like rock stars. So, well, but also <laughs> what's, what's, so, what's so interesting that, is that, that, that really, um, you know, uh, they were still, uh, I mean, in 1985, when, when you were with Kokomo, I mean, the mm-hmm. dead played on Halloween on the University of South Carolina campus. Okay, they, they, yeah. they were still playing university gigs. That's They were still underground. After Touch of Grey... I you know, and if I ever did get a chance to, to to rap with Billy, I mean, to me, it's like they got tremendous. They they were secured financially at that point. They became overnight, but but because of it, they became so big. And ultimately, you see carnage started to occur at the shows. People started to die. People started getting killed. The, the, the yeah. problems with the police. Yeah. So I mean, there was yeah. it was a give and take. I my 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 uh, question for you is, mm. why do you think Billy and Brent? Uh, what did they like about your your playing? I, I I'm curious because they I mean they they must have articulated that to you. You you were not anywhere like you know you didn't have a bluegrass background or you know no. you know like mm-hmm. Garcia. But I uh, I mean improvisationally you guys went open stuff up. So what did they what did they like about it? Well, I think probably first and foremost Detroit. They liked that that in me, um, right. and they liked the you know being a blues based rock funky player that had vocabulary I think um, was and and they found it to be uh, uh, kind of refreshing and also I was the guy who lobbied for shorter guitar solos man they're like what <laughs> I mean, man, let's just play more songs and less guitar solos. You know, and they're right. like, "What?" They like they were laughing. They found that I remember they found that so funny because they're like, just yeah. they're off into. Uh, Kevin, do you? I'm, I'm think this is. Do you have any recordings of that of Kokomo? I don't know. I I I, I don't think I do, but. I mean, even rehearsals, and there's nothing that circulates, and it's unfortunate because the band that was put together after you go ahead. There's plenty of tapes yeah. that circulate. The Kokomo stuff, it would just be a fun project to work on because that, yeah. you know, I got to meet, yeah. I got to meet Morgan, who I love to death, and 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 yeah, uh, sure. Brent is in my soul. Billy is just, and uh, to to be able to to uh, bring, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, to bring your, to bring you into the mix today, uh, it was really, it's a high honor, and I I look forward sure. to. I look forward to doing more with you in the future, man. It's it's just it's I'm I'm just piecing this puzzle back together because it was, uh, it was a lot about support supporting the band. Uh, the band was always any the the music was always bigger than any one individual. And Billy getting up mm-hmm. on the mic and telling the mm-hmm. Deadheads to shut up and listen because this guy is a good player and he's my friend. 
Uh, I just that, that in essence, that's a large chunk of what's missing across all spectrums of society today. And I think it's yeah. just this is why yeah. I do my show, man. And I, I really. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and two and fast forward and I did uh, things after that. And, and then, you know, did a lot of things and toured. And when the Stray Cats broke up, I joined up with Slim Jim and, and Lee and uh, Earl Slick, my old buddy, and we toured and made records and, and things and blah, 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 and did other things. And Clarence Clemens, rest his soul. I was with Clarence, and musical director. And for him, and we just he introduced me to some wonderful people, and I got to play on some wonderful records, and people like Lee Von Helm and Mills Lofgren. And it was just a wonderful time. Ninth, the fall of 1990 came, Jake, and I got sober. October 29th, nineteen ninety, I got sober. Can we? Can and, we? Can we? Can we do a part two? Because I don't want to rush through sure. this. I don't want to rush through this. Yeah, right. there's there's a lot that and there's the band with Neil Schoen. There, there's things that <laughs> precede my sobriety. I was doing a lot of stuff. Yeah, no, I, I this I, I, I let's just let's just cut it here and uh, and then we'll uh, and then we'll we'll connect and do another we'll one. Do part two and we'll talk post that and then then the spiritual side. Yeah, you want to tap on that. I do because ultimately it's, I know it's big that, stuff. Yeah, because yeah. you know what? No matter what you talk about, everybody has their demons. But when you uh, you meet a certain type, I mean, you look at Brent. It's a perfect example. Yeah, uh, as a, I mean, yeah, broke I, my heart. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? So, so, but, but you're still, you got both feet on the ground here still, and so we'll, we'll, uh, much love to you, brother. And uh, well, much love to you, Jake. Thank you. And it's, 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 it's a good life, and I, I'm, I'm very blessed. You, <laughs> you know, are, brother. In all, all areas. Oh yeah. I have a beautiful wife, and my, all, all of my children, stepchildren, and my children, and grandbaby. Everybody's healthy and happy. It's a different life today, Jake. But I will say this in closing. I rocked the 80s, my friend. <laughs> that decade, I rocked. I was last man standing at any given function. I don't get well, no, it. Listen, where we, I only, we are stopping at 1985. We had five more years of the 80s to go. I cannot wait to break oh, I can't oh, yeah. wait to break it down, man. Okay. Cheers, brother. God bless. Dave. All right, man. Have a good day. Later. Okay. You we'll be right back with Sam Cutler right after this on the Jake Feinberg Show.